Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another installment of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. We're happy to have you here, excited to share this time with you, and really, really excited about our guest today. We get the treat of hearing from Pete Enns, who is an Old Testament scholar. He teaches at Eastern University. He's written numerous books. If you've listened to A Pastor and Philosopher Walking to a Bar, you've heard his name, particularly in the Bible uh, B-I-B-L-E episodes. I recommended pretty much all his books. And he is the co-host of a huge podcast that we love called The Bible for Normal People. So exciting times. Yeah. In some ways, they might have been the inspiration for us to even start a podcast. Jared was one of the first people we talked to when we were thinking of maybe doing this. So Mm -hmm. it's really exciting to have Pete on. Yeah, super fun. And we have a fun, we're kind of going old school here with our tasting. We did Woodford Reserve, I think, for our first tasting, right? It was one of the early ones, for sure. One of the early ones, yeah. And we are coming back around for one of the variations. So tell us about it, Kyle. Yeah, so this is a wheat whiskey. I've not had this. In fact, I just saw it on the shelf for the first time a little while ago and decided to grab it just for the podcast. So I don't know what to expect. This is not a bourbon. It's not like anything else we've had. According to the Woodford website, it's 52% wheat, followed by 20% barley, 20% corn, and 8% rye. So wheat tends to be sweeter. I love weeded bourbons. I've never Mm. had a wheat whiskey. Mm. Smells mellow, smells uh, a little bit less hot than their bourbon, I might say. It looks dark. Darker color than I would expect for, I guess, wheat. I would just associate with a light color because of wheat beer. But Mm. Mm. Toasty, sweet. Mm -hmm. Get that Woodford oak. But it mm-hmm. doesn't have as much complexity as their bourbon, I don't think. No, it's, it tastes like a sweet cereal to me with yeah, a, it's light. a little bit of a barrel presence, but not as much as the bourbon. Mm-hmm. Is it a low ABV? Uh, not as low as I would have thought. So this comes in at 45.2. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've had this before, and this was the same experience I had. I had it recently, and I was trying to come in as a blank slate. But yeah. I would say this is like a, a lesser you know, sibling of the actual Woodford bourbon, personally. Yeah, it's a very different drink, though. I don't know if it... You can hardly even compare it to bourbon. Yeah. It's light and nutty and almost... Nutty, sure. Mm-hmm. I get a little bit of banana on the end. I know I find banana in everything, but... <laughs> more like banana peel this time. There's a flavor profile in there that I can't put a word on. I can't find it, but it's, it's in between, like, barn, uh, library. Those are go-tos for me, but... It's kind of flat on my tongue. Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's just not very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I think I have to agree with you. I'm a little disappointed, Woodford. I mean, I would still drink this happily. Mm-hmm. This is a good whiskey to have around a fire with a cigar that you don't sure. have to worry about scorching yeah. your palate and not tasting everything, you know? But not yeah. for if I want to show off a little bit. Yeah, it has almost no finish. just kind of falls off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. It's easy drinking. I would, if you're going to try this, friends, try it neat and start there and go... It's funny you say that. I'm probably going to mix the rest of this box. Yeah, I was going to say this would be great. <laughs> I was going to say it'd be a great too. Manhattan old fashioned that kind of deal. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I actually like it more than you guys do. Okay, it's it's a different enough flavor. It would be one of those I'd grab for a bit of variety if I was just sick of my go tos. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, one more time, Kyle. What is it? This is the Woodford Reserve Wheat Whiskey, and Elliot, you can have the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> so over at our Patreon page, one of the perks of being a top-shelf supporter is that you get name-dropped on the podcast occasionally. So we're going to start that with this episode, and we're going to name-drop one of our top-shelf supporters. If you want to know more about what that means, head over to our Patreon page and look at all the awesome perks that you can get from that. Uh, but right now, we want to thank personally Jake Desotels for being a dedicated top shelf supporter. We couldn't do this without you. 
Thanks so much. Cheers to yeah. Jake. Raise a glass. We are so excited to welcome you, Pete Ends, to the podcast, to a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar. Thank you so much for joining us, Pete. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Good to be here. So, Pete, for the 14 listeners of ours who don't know who you are, <laughs> could you just give a little bit of background as to who you are? Um, and here's here's one little detail I'd love to know. I haven't heard, I've listened to you a lot. I've read a number of your books, really enjoy a lot of stuff, and haven't heard anything blasphemous so far. But I'm looking on your shirt, and I see something blasphemous on your shirt. So also tell us why you love the evil empire of the New York Yankees. <laughs> Well, you can't help what tribe you're born into. You know, that's just it. And I grew up in New Jersey. And okay. I, when I was, my parents were immigrants. When I was a kid, I was flipping channels. I became a baseball fan all on my own when I was like eight years old. And I was flipping channels. And I flipped onto Channel 11 WPIX. And I was watching a Yankee game. And I became a Yankee fan. And I always shudder to think what would happen if I had stopped at Channel 9. I would have become a Mets fan. And that would have been horrible. So, um Another moment of grace in my life, but yeah, so that's it. Well, but, all right, yeah, you're anyway, forgiven. You grew um, up in it. Okay. Yeah, I can't help it. You know, it's like, you know, yep. when I lived in Boston for five years, I had sympathy for Red Sox fans. I didn't hate them. I just felt so bad for them, you know, and just, <laughs> they got back with me. Anyway, that's a long story. But um, so, yeah, I teach at Eastern University, which is a Christian college outside of Philadelphia. And I, I also taught in a seminary for about 14 years. And, um, yeah, I just got into this whole field just because I'm very curious, and I wanted to know more about what I said I believed in. So uh, that got me into seminary and then graduate school, and uh, so we have a podcast, and I write some books, and I teach, and I I do this sort of stuff, too. Fun, fun. So let's start out just going at some hot button uh, words. These are softballs for you, but I think they're going to be interesting for our listeners. You're a full-blown yeah. biblical scholar. You've given your adult life to the study of the scriptures and mm-hmm. thinking about the scriptures, talking about the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. So I'm just going to ask you, and can you give me just a yes or no answer? Do you believe that the Bible is inspired? <laughs> <laughs> can ask ask somebody who's thought about this? Yes, it depends on what you mean by inspired. Okay, so we got a Next yes. <laughs> now, now I want to. Yeah, it's a qualified yes, though. I mean, because can I be? It's a dumb question. Okay, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's a really, really dumb question to open with. It makes no sense. It has to be yes. so qualified. Yes, you know what I mean. So, so, uh, so fine. Okay. So now, okay. so we got a yes out of Pete ends. People hating me on both sides. Good, good. Anyway, go ahead. This is this is this delightful. Is we got a how yes. Many, how many more minutes do we have <laughs> So now, Pete, please qualify and tell us what you mean by you think the Bible is inspired. Well, inspired meaning, uh, you know, I, I have a view on that where to be inspired doesn't mean it's sort of top-down dictation. It's more the mystery of God engaging humanity mm. in imperceptible ways. Mm-hmm. So I think a Bible that is at points contradictory or certainly in tension with each other, where there are different portraits of God, different portraits of Israel, different portraits of Jesus— you can call that inspired, meaning God's presence is in and with the text, and people are still connecting with it. People are struggling with it, too, but it still works, right? So I'd say it's more of a functional view of inspiration than, let's say, a deeply like metaphysical yeah. or something view. I just don't go for that because it doesn't make any sense to yep. me. So that's 
as long as you allow me to define my terms, yeah. I can be very. Well, can can you water. define the term functional? Yes. Yeah. What I mean is that it's it. We I, I believe the writings themselves were composed by people of faith, who were struggling with their relationship with their God. Relationship's a very modern word, but they're articulating their faith in God. And that works well and has worked well for the history of Scripture, both before Christianity and after, to function as a means of grace, I think, for the church. So that's not like an ontological view, you know, of inspiration, which to me is just too abstract and and all these abstract definitions, I think they sort of wind up like crashing against the rocks of the actual data of Scripture themselves, which are very uncompromising and, and not at all um, uh, able to be accommodated, I think, easily to rather ethereal notions of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So I guess I could say I have a very anthropological kind of view of inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a bottom-up thing, but God is a part of it, and I don't know how. Yeah. But I know that it's working. Yeah. So maybe it implies that there is an ontology. We're just not really confident about how to spell it out. Would that be fair? Uh, that could be. Yeah, that could be. And and I might add, and without trying to be like snarky or anything, I don't have a huge interest in trying to figure that out, yeah. but I'm glad other people do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean that's that's that, that's their interest and I just don't yeah. have an interest. It's there, not your so. job, you're a biblical scholar. That's <laughs> I know. I'm just a lowly biblical scholar. So let me. <laughs> Philosophers scare me, by the way. So. I'll try. I'll try not to. So one quick follow up: Would you say yeah. that another sacred text, like say the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, could be inspired in the same way? Yes. Yeah, we've been inspired in the same way. Yeah, and I, I, I can't see why I can't say that. Or, you know what I mean? I just I can't get out of that, yeah. and I don't really want to get out of it. I think, I think the world religions have sacred texts and traditions that I think God is behind all those as well. And they kicked okay. you out of evangelicalism? <laughs> yeah, I, no, I left. <laughs> all kidding aside, I mean, I, I know evangelicals who will talk like that, right? Because I think people are coming to grips with a shrinking world. And, you know, the more we have contact with people we've never met before, and, and the more we realize that, you know, we're very much a product of where we happen to be born. I think there are a lot of people having conversations like that. And uh, they just can't do it very openly. And, you know, I'm very glad that I'm in a place just both professionally and personally where, you know, I can talk out loud and think out loud about that. I don't have full conclusions on these things, but if you can't even utter the issue or utter the question, what are we doing this for? Mm -hmm. Right. We're just playing a game at that point. And I just don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, Kyle, that's where I am at this point. You know, I'm, I'm happy to have my mind changed at some point, but, um, yeah, that's where I am. Good. So, Pete, when you say, yes, other sacred texts could be inspired and you think God could be behind them, explain that for our listeners. So, the people who have their brains exploding out of their heads right now. I know. Um, explain that. <laughs> Why did we start with this? This, this is, is good. This is with, good. We're right in it. everybody's happy and they like me and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess what I mean by that, I mean, what God is behind it is... I think any language I try to use to explain that's going to be equally inadequate. I just think the presence of God is fundamentally spirit that pervades everyone and everything. That's mm-hmm. what I believe about God. I don't believe I can point to a place in the sky and say that's where God is. I think God is fundamentally spirit and I hope can handle the cosmos that we live in. Mm-hmm. 
right? And and when I think of our tiny little pale blue dot planet, as Carl Sagan says, and the different kinds of humans that live on it, I I, I hope that God doesn't have a special group to the exclusion of everyone mm-hmm, else, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's what I mean. God is... You know, C.S. Lewis talked like this at the end of the last battle of people who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, where, you know, he um, is talking to a soldier of this god, Tosh, who's ba- clearly a Muslim figure in the mm-hmm. book. But uh, he was convinced of, you know, the truth of who Aslan is, and he was, like, feeling really bad about not following Aslan. And, and Aslan says, whatever you've done for Tosh, you've done for me. And reading that in my early 20s, like, okay, I can live with this. This is a really interesting way of thinking about it. And, of course, your next question should be, and if it's not, it really should be, is what makes Christianity unique and all that sort of stuff. And I think all religions are unique. They're all, they all have their distinctive elements. Of course, this is a five-hour answer, right? I mean, this is a big topic. But for me, it really is the kind of story that it tells about the way God shows up with humanity, which is in a crucified, humiliated Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's a very important element. It's not the only thing, but it's a thing that I've latched onto for a few years that the whole honor and shame dynamic that you have in antiquity and certainly in the Hebrew scriptures and in Greco-Roman religion, that's just completely just obliterated in the cross mm-hmm. where God willingly aligns with humiliation, which is what crucifixion is, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just a way of dying. It's it's humiliating, it's shameful. And you know, if you want to start a religion in the first century, your your lead is not your founder was crucified by the Romans. That that is rather absurd. And so, you know, Paul in Romans has to say things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. Why would he be ashamed? Well, because of how it started. But he's saying that is the power of God. That's the paradox. And I think that's a beautiful paradox to just sort of sit with and meditate with. And and that's, I mean, I would so I would start with something like that for understanding the distinctiveness of Christianity. But that the distinctiveness is the mystery. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're sort of stuck there and we can't really yep. articulate it much better. That's so. great. Yeah. I mean, Richard Rohr said if it's true somewhere, it's true anywhere. And if something is true, yeah. it's of the spirit. And the spirit is pursuing all people at all times, whether that's through their sacred texts or the stars or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I've got another, I've got, here's the lights flashing, obnoxious question coming. Okay. Another one. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you, is the Bible, would you consider the Bible authoritative in your life? It depends on what you mean by authority. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just, this is, Um, we'll we'll qualify it in a second, but would you say yes or no to that? Uh, yes. Okay. I would say definitely yes to that. Okay. Okay. So explain that now, please. I think, you know, the way authority is usually assumed to be the case in, let's say, popular Christianity is I would call it a legal authority. Here are the rules and it tells you what to do and what to think. Mm -hmm. I think the Bible is too diverse to handle that kind of a model of authority. John Golden Gay, for example, he had models of I think it's Models of Authority, actually, the book is called, something like 30 years ago. But, you know, there's also a prophetic kind of authority, which is calling for justice and envisioning a new reality vaguely, just in, 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 um, in, in a sketched out sort of form. Well, that's, that's a different kind of authority. I think the Bible is authoritative for this in the sense that when I think about God, 
And when I think about the nature of the Christian faith, when I think about the gospel, I can't, I don't make a move without engaging scripture, the biblical tradition, and how the biblical tradition has been handled. Mm. So again, we sort of come to, let's say, functionally, it certainly acts as an authority. And I, I've, I'm very much at peace with that. You know, I, I think that's actually, you can't, you can't do this and say, okay, let's have a Christian conversation. Well, who cares about the Bible? You might hate the Bible, but you can't ignore it. Hmm. It's just, it is what it is with all its great stuff and all its weird problems. In that sense, it's acting as an authority, but it's an authority that is not a, as I'd like to say, a rule book authority. It's more it sets a context within which we have this means of grace for engaging and experiencing the, the spirit. Hmm. See, that won't fly in like a tweet. No. Nope. Right. <laughs> yep. and, I know, and it won't. But again, welcome to being an adult and being in the Christian world and engaging exceedingly complicated and multi-layered answers, and most of which I don't even handle on. Man, I wish we had four hours. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. Kyle, go ahead if you got any follow-ups. Well, yeah, so I personally wouldn't call that authority, but again, the word is okay. super complicated. Uh, would it be fair right. to sum up your view as saying that uh, if you're going to make a decision as a Christian, the Bible will always be relevant to that decision? Yes, um, but I would say, careful, and, and I know you're not saying this, but I would say very careful, not on the proof-texting level, sure. but on, mm. let's say, the meta-narrative level, yes. the big picture of Scripture, taking into account debates within Scripture about very interesting issues, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I would, I would say that. So, yeah. Yeah. one more follow-up. <laughs> you just mentioned debates within Scripture. Just give us yeah. the, the three-minute version of, like, wait— there's debates within scripture? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, there are differences of opinion. And I think the classic New Testament example is that Peter and Paul and probably James clearly did not get along. Yes. <laughs> you know, they had a very significant debate that, you know, Paul says was eventually settled. The book of Acts sort of papers over it a little bit, but Galatians doesn't, and James certainly doesn't, because mm -hmm. James is essentially arguing the opposite of what Paul argues. And they're both in Scripture. And I think, you know, Paul won that argument, I guess, but at a loss for the kinds of things that I think James was saying about works and faith and the relationship between those two things. So you have that. And in the Old Testament, you know, the book of Job, very briefly, he's having a bad day, right? Things are not working out. And his friends are sad for him, but they say, listen, you're suffering. What did you do to deserve that? Because, you know, the, the, the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. You're clearly cursed, Job. What did you do? And his friends are really espousing a very orthodox theology that you find, you know, prevalent and not all over, the, not everywhere, but prevalent in the Old Testament of sort of a retributive justice yeah. kind Deuteronomy. of thing. And yeah, like Deuteronomy is huge. The Deuteronomistic history, mm -hmm. which is, you know, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, they, that's very much the case. Proverbs sort of sits there. Some Psalms sit there. You know, Psalm 1, there are two kinds of people, mm -hmm. the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will be planted, the wicked will be driven away like chaff. So they're not saying anything like, you can't look at Job's friends and say, you've got horrible theology. No, they have really good biblical theology. Mm -hmm. And that's probably something that Job espoused himself. Because he had a lot of stuff. 
He was well off, and he was like super hyper worshiper of God, you know, sacrificing for his children and stuff like that. But then he starts suffering, and his friends say, you know, what did you do to deserve that? And Job says, I didn't do anything. And they said, yeah, you did. And he goes, I didn't. And they said, yeah, you did. And Job says, I didn't. It goes on for like 30 chapters, (laughs) just back and forth. And then at the end, the beautiful end of Job, where God appears and sort of settles the debate, if it were only that easy. And he looks at one of Job's three friends, and he said, my wrath is kindled against you, for you have not spoken rightly of me, as my servant Job has. Mm. Job is maintaining his innocence. He was he was cutting off the classic, you know, blessings come because you're righteous and, and cursing doesn't. And so you have the book of Job, the climax of the story, not sitting well with, you know, Deuteronomy and other places. And I and the thing is that, you know, when the Bible was put together, probably after the Babylonian exile and who knows how much long after, but those who were responsible for making these kinds of decisions were not idiots. They knew what they were reading, but all of it encompasses the experience of Israel. Hmm. And that's a good thing for us to remember too. You know, there's not just the triumph, there's also the pain. And, And see, having that debate, I think, gives us permission to to say, okay, how am I perceiving God at this moment? Mm-hmm. And and to be honest about that, right? And I think Scripture scripture gives us that permission. Back to authority, in that sense, there's an authoritative dimension, even if, you know, Kyle, we might want to use another word for that, which I'm fine with, you know. Um, but that's how I think it works. Yeah, so like on any really simplistic view of authority that you might find in a kind of fundamentalism, you've got a problem here because the authority is itself deeply internally conflicted. <laughs> Yes, exactly. The authoritative text is not on the same page, and you cannot have that, Yeah. right, with certain models of, see, not just biblical authority, but I think actually certain models of what God is like. Mm-hmm. I think it's that deep of an issue. It's not just the Bible. It's the fact that the Bible has to be a certain way to protect God being a certain mm-hmm. way. And I just love how the Bible just, it keeps challenging theological systems. Yeah including my own, yeah. right? Not just the bad guys, but it's just, it's not a, it's not an easily systematized yeah. collection of writings. Yeah. And just, just to add on for our listeners who might be wondering, you would agree that it's not an accident that there is debate within the Bible, correct, Pete? Not at all. I think it's, again, even just from an anthropological human point of view, this is valued. You know, when you have Psalms that are like, God's the best, and the other ones saying, uh, you're never around when we need you, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And even Psalm 89, which basically calls God a liar for sending the Judahites into Babylonian exile, because you promised this would never happen. Mm. You said there would always be somebody sitting on the throne, one of David's sons, and it hasn't happened, Mm. right? So challenging God is part of the scriptural tradition and part of the life of faith. And I think the Israelites, in their wisdom, which let's call it an inspired wisdom, right, in their wisdom— all of this belongs, mm-hmm. and you can't get rid of it to smooth it over. Yeah, I think to me that's the beauty of the Bible. That's what makes it worth reading. Sometimes you see these things, and we recognize our own struggles with it, both maybe collectively, but also individually. There's something there for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. 
for listeners that are wondering, the my preferred take on it as the philosopher that's here in the podcast is the Bible is evidence about what God is like. And uh, there's lots of different kinds of evidence about what God is like. And it has, you know, there are different mm-hmm. methods of assessing evidence that are appropriate to the specific kind of evidence you have. But we wouldn't consider that authority because it doesn't have any more claim on our attention than any other type of evidence, at least not, you know, essentially. So, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. You philosophers simplifies the whole thing for me. <laughs> philosophers are allergic to authority. It's like in our DNA to buck against it. So. Yeah. But we love evidence. Or, or how about this? How about this? Not to make it even more complicated, but how about adding a wrinkle to that? It's it's evidence, right, of of God. That's what you're saying. Maybe a step before that. It's evidence of how people understood sure. God given certain contexts. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're sort of saying something very similar. But I would also add to the story that there isn't anything else. Right. Like so. So one of one of my assumptions yeah. is that how people have understood what God is is all there is to what God is. Yeah. Now I actually I think that's if I can compliment you I think it's a very profound and important point that you're making because it ensures that we not trap God into a system of our own making, yeah. you know, creating yeah. God in our own image. Yep. I think it, I think that protects the mystery of God, which in my life over the past 15 years has become not an escape route, but just a realization that, like Aquinas, you know, when he died, supposedly, I mean, you might know better than I do, but I was like, basically he said, what the heck? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> Boy, I wish I hadn't written all that stuff. You know, and I think that's true, you know, that we, we're just trying. Even when he was writing this stuff, though, like, yeah. so, and lest a listener think, oh, my God, this is off the deep end liberal. This is squarely orthodox Thomist orthodox. philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. He was very clear before his revelation at the end of his life that everything we've said about God is yeah. an analogy. The whole thing yeah. is a metaphor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And what that does is it might be scary for people to hear that, but what that absolutely protects is that no one can co-opt God. Yes. No one can attain God, so to speak, and and be the ones who divvy God out to others. Yeah. Right? So pastors yeah. are freaking out all over yep. the country right now. Humility. Or however many do- however many sure, sure, listeners sure. you have. I yeah. don't know what's going on. On a on good here, day. But, you know. now, but but like by the way, also Aquinas, since he's we're considering his view here. Loved Muslim philosophy. Yeah. So let it be known that Aquinas... Oh, he, I did not know that. That's interesting. Well, that was the age, wasn't it? That was the age when there was a lot of maybe yeah. engagement between uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Christian Catholic philosophers and Muslim and, and, yeah. and Jewish philosophers yeah. too, right? That was like the good old days mm-hmm. when people got along. He, loved the, he loved the pagans. He loved Aristotle. He loved all minutes. of it. And he, he found just right. as much truth in those traditions mm-hmm. as in his own. And hence is trying to yeah. synthesize these, right? And 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 um, yeah, boy, we've we've definitely mm-hmm. lost that, haven't we? I mean, not not entirely, but it's not. Yeah, that's just not the way Christians are supposed to be. No, it's know, heretical today yeah. to think of that. Yeah. So so let's uh, let's roll oh. this into a mm-hmm. brief discussion about Exodus, if we can, because you just wrote a book on Exodus, came out early this year, Exodus for oh, yeah. Normal People. Uh, so right off the bat in that book, you lay out some basics about Exodus that I want to ask you about. So you say, uh, wasn't sure. written by Moses, compiled centuries after the events it describes. We don't know who compiled it. There's almost no evidence that any of it happened, at least as described in the book. <laughs> Just kind of lay out this stuff right mm-hmm. at the beginning, right? Anything else? So, <laughs> so given that, given these facts, 
What do you think the significance of that book is for modern Christians? Why does it matter? Yeah, I think, you know, there are probably potentially very different answers to that question. One is, I I think the theology of a book, and let's say the truth of the theology can actually transcend the history Mm -hmm. or be a side of the history. So, you know, I love the story of Exodus, and this is how ancient Israelites understood God to be very genuinely, very authentically, and it's stuck. You know, it's like the core narrative. The whole Sinai Exodus thing is the core narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures. For us today, it really depends on who the us is. I used to have problems with liberation theology's appropriation of the Exodus story, because it's not really sticking to what it originally meant, but that was many years ago. I don't think that way anymore. I think I think people have found, oppressed peoples have found tremendous solace in the book of Exodus that God ultimately champions the oppressed. And, you know, we can discuss the nuances of that. And, you know, if God champions the oppressed, why is is it okay to have slaves, you know, later on in Exodus? I understand that. That's one of the many theological conundrums in Exodus, but still in principle, I think it's a good idea. I think, you know, for Christians, there's the broader, like, biblical theological engagement with the text where, like the book of Hebrews does, you know, like uh, Jesus is Moses 2.0 and bringing us out of slavery into new life. So I think it's it's that's a different kind of appropriation, more what we often do with the Old Testament, which is not really stick to what the story is, but sort of take it to another direction. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, again, I think this is sort of a more nerdy kind of answer, but I really want to understand ancient Hebrew Israelite theology. I want to understand how they thought, even if I look at that and say, I just, this doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't jive with my experience of God. It doesn't jive for me very well with certain things I read elsewhere in the Bible. But at one point in time, this was an authentic articulation of faith. And to struggle with that, even if I then say, well, okay, I, I do think differently as do other Christians think differently, but I've done the hard work of respecting the story and not just glancing over it. And I think what that does ultimately is it makes for a much richer and much more nuanced theology. We don't just paper over these stories and make them say whatever you want mm-hmm. them to say. So follow-up question to that, Pete. I a couple of years ago, you had a scholar on talking about the reality that there's no archaeological evidence that the Exodus actually happened. Right. And I talked to a family member that evening, and it kind of short-circuited things. You know, I got one of those delicious emails where they're questioning my faith because I said, you know, the Exodus might not have happened. It wound up you really need great. To stop doing that, by the way. You need to stop doing that. But anyway, that's it. Wound up really wonderful. It's great. Okay, um, that's good. All right. However. I think that person summed up a lot of Christendom, you know, modern Christendom's question, which is basically the Bible is told us that the Exodus actually happened, which if you think of inspiration in that certain simplistic way, that means that God told us the Exodus actually happened. That means that if it didn't actually happen, God might be lying to us or the Bible isn't true Mm -hmm. and trustworthy. And then you can put other Old Testament events in there, whether or not Jonah was actually swallowed by a great fish or whether or not a global flood actually did happen or so on and so forth. So can you tell us, tell our listeners why Exodus might be useful, even if 
there's a possibility that it didn't happen? Well, I think there, I think there are some larger questions behind that, that I think you can't get to that right without clearing some ground. I mean, you said before, and I appreciate this, the, uh, you know, the Bible says it actually happened. The Bible doesn't say anything. People interpret what the Bible says. Hmm. And that's, that's, again, that's a subtle point and perhaps far too subtle for some. And I understand that. And my job isn't to get them to understand that subtlety. I'm just saying that for me, you know, there's the joke about the professor who, you know, is engaging a student in seminary and the student says, well, the Bible says, and he goes, oh, okay, open, open the Bible to that page and don't say anything, <laughs> right? So he sits there for five minutes and... And he goes, well, and the professor goes, well, and he goes, well, what? He goes, what's it saying? <laughs> it's not saying you have to read it and interpret it. And that's the hermeneutical reality of the Bible. It always has to be interpreted. So, so, you know, those places where, you know, Exodus is claimed as history, well, see, now we get into the genre issue, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We have to understand these texts according to genre. And the problem is, you know, what kind of literature is it? Right, a historical narrative is different than a poem. Is different than a mythic retelling of something. And the question is, okay, well, what is the genre of Exodus? Good question. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to the yeah. the debate. Yeah. You know, and and what most scholars say. I mean, I, I really do mean most scholars say something like this. You have clearly a historical something in this story. It seems like you're not going to make this up. You know. Mm. But the evidence makes the history very complicated. The evidence that we do have, even within the Bible itself, means that whatever happened probably doesn't line up with the story itself. The story is, as I say in the book, it's mythicized history. It's history, but it's given a a layer of theological meaning in antiquity, which is often expressed in mythological terms, which we could define that too. But I don't mean... I don't mean fairy tale. I mean just the way ancient people thought about the divine realm and how the divine realm connects with the human realm. So it, it complicates that question. It would be very hard for me to to just answer that question, let's say, in a tweet mm-hmm, for someone. Mm-hmm. And I would try to. I would, I would try not to go into all this kind of stuff and maybe ask some questions about, you know, what kind of literature is Exodus? Well, it's, it's clearly historical literature. Well... It, there's much more going on there than that, than just historical. What we mean by historical literature, the ancient Israelites probably didn't, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if they had a word for historical literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they made such a sharp division the way modern people do mm-hmm. between history and creative engagement with their own context. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm trying not to say myth again, because it's. I know it's a trigger word, mm-hmm. but Myth doesn't mean not true in antiquity. It means deeply true in ways that transcend the accidents of history, so to speak. And, and, you know, but that's a hard thing to wrap your head around because you really have to spend time to see that and to accept it. And it's not easy. I don't, I don't expect people just, oh yeah, that's fine. I get that. Yep. I mean, it kind of fits with a God who incarnates and, you know, God comes in the flesh and then just starts telling stories that maybe might right. might not have happened, seems consistent, that's trying to communicate the deepest truths human beings can ever wrap our heads around. And, and not just any human beings, but the ancient human beings. Mm. And, 
who already had a world and their their religious faith is understood within the context of what of their understanding of everything else right yeah so you have genesis 1 which is a wonderful story of creation of the cosmos which is really very fruitfully understood within the context of ancient you know babylonian and canaanite stories and because that's their world right we have assumptions too about the nature of reality whether it's you know economic realities we don't have a barter system anymore you know we we think in terms of cash and credit and we don't question that and you know we use metaphors all the time for talking about god that makes sense you know god's the ceo or something like that mm-hmm. or you know even you know god is deeply concerned with family values hmm. right that's that's bringing our own values into our discussion of god which is I think unavoidable, right? To to create God in our own image, I think is part of doing theology. You have to hold it lightly and let that be critiqued and, and ready to change. But you know, Kyle, like you're saying, our language of God is always metaphorical, it's analogical or something. It's not direct. We're we're just people. And you know, then well, how do you know that you know any of this is real? I, I don't know, but there is the mystery of incarnation too, where God is deeply embedded in humanity. Mm-hmm. So m- maybe these things have a truth to them because of its humanity and not despite it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Let me ask you a theological question. I know you're a biblical scholar, but I know you also have thoughts about this particular question. So, uh, just from a, okay. like a cursory read of Exodus, the God of Exodus does not come off as what you might call even-tempered. So how how do we square what we find in a book like Exodus with what we find in the New Testament, teaching of God as the kind of God who expects you to love your enemies? Yeah, I mean, first, I mean, just I agree with the, the fact that that is a legitimate dilemma. You do have the Ananias and Sapphira story in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of blood in the book of Revelation, so you do have moments, right? Although some people would say, well, those writers didn't get God either. They have this view of God that doesn't work, which I think is a pretty good argument. But but yeah, how do we square that? And for me, again, you're asking me for my opinion. I simply chalk that up to watching the—I don't want to use the word progress, but more just the— developing, even evolving views of God in Scripture, where in a context that's fundamentally tribalistic, where, like, the gods, one of the gods' chief functions, the head gods' chief functions, is to basically go to war, (laughs) you know, either with other gods up there, which is part of the plague narratives in Exodus, there's a lot of that going on there, the warrior mentality is your God is going out, not just to beat up other gods, but to beat up other people. And your God is great by virtue of how successful God is militarily. Mm-hmm. And I I will say without qualification, I do not believe that describes the way God is. Mm-hmm. What did I just say, Malcolm? What I know about God mm-hmm. is, but I don't believe that. But I know that they did, because if I were living in the Iron Age, mm-hmm. I would be thinking the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not a condescension. It's not even a disrespect. It's to say that the Bible keeps moving. And God's always sort of out ahead of people, I think, in the Bible. There's always something else. There's always a surprise that God is doing that sort of 
critiques or even in some cases shatters other views of looking at mm-hmm. God. And I think that's that's not a New Testament versus Old Testament thing. That's happening within the Old Testament itself. And it's certainly happening in the New, where I think it's actually taken up a notch, where there's very little in the Gospel story that you would really actually get from reading the Old Testament story. There's something always being turned around and flipped around, and you know, even the honor and shame thing we talked about before, that's that's a totally different kind of way of looking at God that's just changing, I think, in the New Testament. So mm-hmm. I would sort of look at it as basically, I mean, I don't, I don't really like the term too much, it's fine, but progressive revelation. That's not anthropological enough for me, the way I think about the development of the Bible, but there is a progressiveness within the Bible itself, and that's how I basically look at that and say, you don't have to you don't have to take everything in the Bible and make it all fit and here's your picture of God, sort of a Frankenstein that you've stitched mm-hmm. together. It's it's different. I think it's more showing us that change is inevitable in how we think about God. And I'm not sure if that just sort of magically stopped at the end of the New Testament yeah. either. Yep. Brian Zahn, when we talked to him, he put it this way that I really enjoyed. He said, the Bible seems to be on a journey of discovery along with us, moving towards the incarnation. And that helped me. Yeah, yeah. I would add, though, that even with the incarnation, things have kept moving and kept changing and developing, right? Because the New Testament has its own context, Mm -hmm. right? But And fundamentally, I agree with that. But the incarnate, the the mystery of incarnation hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's just like the volume was turned up, you know, in the New Testament, but it's it's still going. And my my proof text for that is the entire history of Christianity, which has had philosophical movements and changes and adaptations, and some of them probably not great, but many of them probably fantastic. Yeah. And on, on that theme of yeah. uh, the Bible meaning different things now, maybe than it uh, used to, given changes in context, a very recent application of uh, the Book of Exodus happened at that conservative committee conference earlier this year and back in February, you, you may know where I'm going with this, where they, CPAC. so this is the CPAC conference, I think. And somebody brought in a giant golden statue of Donald Trump. Uh, and then Christian Twitter went crazy uh, through yeah. the comparisons to the golden calf and Exodus. Yeah. Now who knows if whoever made right. that statue had actually read Exodus or intended that to be a reference or not. I'm not going to speculate <laughs> on that, not. but can yeah. you maybe comment on the meaning yeah. of the golden calf story sure. and explain yeah. what, if anything, you think it might have to say about our current political climate? Um, well, I, I guess let's take the second one first. People say, why can't I apply the Bible this way? Well, I think this is where the the broad prophetic tradition of the Bible can come in really handy, because when it's about self-aggrandizement and power and political power, it's critiqued, Right. So this is not something that is for the, let's say, the, the, the movement of the gospel, speaking as Christians, it's to baptize a political party or one political figure and using the Bible and a biblical story perhaps to do that. And that's so much, that is so, I think that is so fundamentally contradictory to the biblical witness, whether it's the prophetic voice, or whether it's, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, or whether it's Paul calling Jesus Lord when there was already somebody occupying that title, politically Caesar. So, I I mean, I would look at that that way. But 
the other one, we know what is the golden calf story about? That's a really good question. Basically, it's with the absence, you know, dad goes away, Moses, and he's off talking to God. And what the Israelites do is simply collapse into the natural way in which people come into the presence of the gods, which is through some sort of a symbol, an idol. We call it an idol. Something carved, it could be stone, it could be wood, right? It could be clay, something. And they're doing what comes sort of naturally to them as ancient people. And it's that very thing that is so roundly condemned by God. That th- See, this is the thing. God's out ahead of them, right? You don't worship me the way other people, people's worship their gods you don't do this even though it's like the most natural thing you know relatively innocent really from an ancient point of view but i think to me that's one of the points at least of the golden calf story which you know moses has to calm god down after that and that's one of those uh you know sort of imbalanced deity kinds of things like i'm just going to kill everybody Moses says, don't do that, because the nations will say, what kind of a God are you dragging him into the desert just to let him die? God says, you know, you're right. But I still want some people to die. So they go through the camp and kill 3,000 Israelites. You know, um, the Levites go through and kill 3,000 Israelites. Okay, that's weird. But I can bracket that stuff from other things in the story that I think has, let's say, more abiding value for us to think through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people will say, well, you're just picking and choosing. Like, you're darn right I'm picking and choosing. <laughs> That's the history of Christian thought. We pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Not all of the Bible is equally ultimate, right? Yeah. We, we pick and choose. The entire Old Testament isn't alluded to in the New Testament. You know, the, the writers are picking and choosing there, too. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full-menu restaurant, and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap, available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryhillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryhillBKC.com. Can you tell us where in the Bible, what does the Bible have to say? There's millions of people who believe in biblical inerrancy, millions of Christians. What does the Bible have to say about biblical inerrancy? Um, nothing. <laughs> in my opinion, I mean, inerrancy is, I mean, even like Augustine talked about how the Bible doesn't have errors, but he didn't mean anything like what is meant in the past, say, couple hundred years by the term. It's really to protect against German higher criticism and the fact that Darwin's wrong and the fact that archaeology can't relativize the Bible. We're going to protect it by this word inerrancy. And in doing so, you're protecting God. Right. That's that's sort of what it's about. So I don't think there's anything in the Bible that really can you be used to defend that? I mean, I know all scripture is God breathed mm-hmm. and all that. And the thing is, I understand that. And anyone who thinks that that's a proof text for inerrancy, all I can say is, I mean, gently read. Mm-hmm. Read what how commentaries sort of understand that. And not because they hate Jesus, but because that's not really saying everything the Bible says is historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Or there are no contradictions. It's not saying that at all. And... Whatever proof text you can find, you have to match that up 
with the data, you know, how the Bible behaves. You can make abstract points out of a verse taken out of context, but when you watch what it's doing, you know, the Bible begins with two creation stories that you can't reconcile. Yes. You know, you have four Gospels, you've got two histories of Israel, you've got, you've got laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that are clearly about the same thing, but they don't agree. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do with that? If you want to say inerrancy and accept those things, then that's fine, mm-hmm. but you've really just redefined inerrancy in a way that it just renders null and void the reason why the term was used in the first place, which is to protect the Bible against having those kinds of problems, which it clearly has, right? So... I just it, it's so it so flies in the face of it and uh, face of the Bible mm-hmm. and you know the way it's been said to me like so Pete you think there are errors in the Bible that makes you an errantist mm-hmm. and my answer is like no the whole thing's a category mistake mm-hmm. Th- those are not the words we use to describe this beautifully diverse very messy disruptive collection of texts that defies our little taglines which are really not meant to protect the Bible, frankly. They're meant to protect our theological systems, hmm. right? Because yep. that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's, there's one meaning, it's true. And by the way, we have it. That church down the street, they don't, yep. right? Yep. And it becomes more a combative thing than actually descriptive of the Bible. It creates trauma for people hmm. when you know they're 25 years old and they sort of say, I don't really have anything to do with Christianity because I don't believe the Bible is inerrant. I'm like, well, most Christians don't, not the way you yeah. were raised. There are so many other ways of thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who have been in that faith crisis of um, needing, being told that if the Bible isn't inerrant, it's not legitimate, you can't trust it. Just welcome to this spacious place where you don't have to have that tight little theology that where it's like a Jenga tower and you pull one thing out and it right. all crumbles. It's way more yeah. spacious, way more enjoyable, yeah. way more delightful and complex than that. And, and what if God enjoys that space yes. with us, yes. right? That's the thing. is because I think the, the trauma is like, God's going to be mad at me. Mm-hmm. And we're told that. Again, not, not to be flipped, but then why did God give us this Bible like this, right? See, I mean, it's like the problem is one of our own creation. It doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from biblical teaching. It comes from ways of reading the Bible within certain historical contexts that will work until, I mean, forgive me, it'll work until you start reading the Bible carefully and really taking the details seriously. And then you see, this doesn't fit with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So your podcast, The Bible for Normal People, has been super influential amongst progressive Christians, including us. And a major strength of it is that it introduces listeners to non-Christian biblical scholarship, which in many cases turns out to be maybe better Mm -hmm. than Christian biblical scholarship, maybe because they're not working within some of the same kind of limiting assumptions that Christian scholars, particularly evangelical scholars, sometimes are. So you guys have this strong ecumenical, strong interfaith, you know, aspect to your to your podcast. So let me put the question to you this way. As a biblical scholar who runs a podcast like that, somebody that's still a Christian, do you think that Christians have any special insight into understanding their own sacred text? Um yeah, I think they do. You know, and I, but I think others do as well, including 
you know, Jews reading the New Testament, you know, especially Jewish scholars reading the New Testament can give us Jewish background. But, I, you know, I certainly do. And, you know, I th- I'd say most of the people we have on the podcast are Christian of some variety, although we have many Jews. We've had one or two atheists as well. But, but I think all of them can have insights, you know, into this text. And sometimes we get, you know, so close to it that, as somebody once said, we're so committed to having the truth that when the truth actually shows up, we don't recognize it, we don't see it, right? And sometimes we need help from outside of our own tribe to sort of see that. But yeah, I mean, the rich history of Christian thinking, you know, the history of Christian thought is quite a beautiful and complex thing. And to say that, you know, those are devoid of insights, even if they're insights that people move past Mm-hmm. They're still insights, mm-hmm. you know, and and we need to make our mistakes and our missteps to to keep moving on. That's good. So, yep. Yeah. So, Pete, last question. Then I know that there we get messages from people who say my faith was hanging on by a thread, and you know the conversations that you guys open up have have saved that in some ways. So we know that there's some mm-hmm. people who are in the middle of deconstruction. Maybe their faith is literally hanging on by a thread. Maybe they just said I I don't identify as a Christ follower anymore. Because of the Bible, because of Christians, because of the church, because of all sorts of things. I love your take and your perspective. What would you just have to say to to listeners in that place in their life and their faith journey right now? I think as counterintuitive as it might feel, I'd say you have to be authentic in what you're thinking and feeling. And I think God honors that. And it's also okay and normal to be in a place of being disassembled, Mm -hmm. you know, spiritually, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I guess what I've learned in my life from others is that, you know, when you see your, your faith in God sort of slipping away, it's, it's really more maybe how you've understood God to be, which has worked great but there's always something beyond that. And so you're not really abandoning God. Again, whatever we mean by that term, that's a whole other issue, but you you may be more needing to get past equating our thoughts with God, with God. And our thoughts are helpful. They're metaphors. You know, there are ways of understanding God or communing with God. But when we lock God into those words, and into those ideas that we hold so closely, then then our ideas of God get in the way. And I think it's actually a mercy of God mm. that we go through very dry times, you know, because it's sort of hitting reset a little bit. That's yeah. why I look at it. That's so I good. don't say that lightly because it's not fun. Yeah. You know, it's it's very difficult. You so know? decentering. So, yeah. But welcome to faith. Yep. You know, so. Yeah. It feels like an obligatory question to ask, like, where to find you. But I feel like if someone's listening to a podcast, they already know how to yeah. operate on the internet. So they know where to find Pete Enz's books, right? right? And all the stuff. But where, where can people find right. you, Pete? We got to ask. Well, we have the Bible for normal people.com, which is our website. It's all you can find it with PeteEnz.com as well. But everything's there. You know, we have like classes we offer, you know, the books, like speaking stuff and the podcast, you can get there too. That's really it. You know, I mean, I'm on Facebook and also Twitter and Instagram because, and I have a cat who's pretty much the star of Instagram right now, but anyway, uh, who's not here. She's always in my face with her butt right in my face (laughs) as I'm doing these things because she senses it. So anyway, but uh, one more thing, if I can add this, this is very important. 
Um, it's been bugging me for like the past half hour, but now I get it. Kyle, hmm. I have something to say to you. Sure. Um, you look like Paul McCartney in the Abbey Road. Not the Abbey Road, but more – you're more um, – Let it be. Yeah, yeah, let it be. That's sort of uh-huh. where I was going to say maybe maybe a little white albumish too, but kudos <laughs> to you. But I'm, I'm you Googling lazy as eye. we speak. <laughs> you need the lazy eye a little bit. but uh, I'll work on that. Do you play bass or piano or anything? Because that'd be really guitar, amazing. piano. Yeah. yeah. Are you left-handed? No. <laughs> oh well. Maybe you were. Anyway. So anyway, that's a compliment, by the way. I'm a huge Beatles well, uh, fan, but it's like I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Good. <laughs> that's the most well, important Peter, thing that happened today for me. I just I feel like I met Paul McCartney. <laughs> that's what you're gonna. That's how you're gonna think of us now. I know. I will. Yep. Okay. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. So wonderful to talk to you really excited about what you have next on the Bible for Normal People, what you're going to write next. We're, we're fans. Okay. I appreciate that. It's good to be here, guys. Good to meet you, too. Good to meet Kindred Spirits. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast before you close your app. You can also share the episode with friends or family members with the links from our social media pages. Gain inside access extra perks, and more at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. We're so grateful for your support of the podcast. Until next time, this has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar.